Hello, Hireside Chatters. Greg Carlwood here offering a quick, short, pre-show PSA. I think it's pretty common knowledge that I record my interviews in advance. And in this one, there is a section where we have a little banter about the dangers of releasing sensitive material that you might have dug up. Yes, it comes up even in something as mundane sounding as sports. But when billions of dollars are involved, nothing is mundane. And obviously, it's a common thread of conversation on a show like this that could come up any given week. But in light of the loss of Tracy Twyman, it doesn't sound great. Again, we recorded this before any of that happened. And that's not even to say the release of sensitive information is related to Tracy's death. We don't know, and I don't want to suggest anything either way. But we all know that when we're in the proximity of a loss like this, we usually wait a while before we return to talking so cavalierly about such things. It is bad form not to. I thought about removing it, but just offering this caveat seemed like a more honest way to go about it. I didn't say anything I don't believe, but I definitely would have changed my tone, and I think anyone can understand that. And I apologize to Brian for starting his return to THC off like this, but I couldn't say nothing. Again, thoughts and prayers for Tracy's friends and family. And now, on with the show. Brace yourself, because you're about to dive into another free first-hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you get years of plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the higher side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. Doing what we do, higher side chatters. How the hell are you? From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And while our infrastructure crumbles, our so-called elected officials line their own pockets, our debt-based system of rules slowly self-implodes, and the capstone cabal kicks off another social engineering campaign or population control program, many Americans are so spellbound by professional sports they can't bring themselves to care or even notice. Of course, I have my own juvenile time-wasting pastimes and entertainment addictions, but strangers struggling over a ball week after week has never been one of them. Though it should be clear to everyone just how powerful and potent the sports industry is in America and really around the world. 
We're talking billions of dollars a year in each individual league, and all of their houses are built on the perception of fairness and integrity, which quite honestly, is never really questioned and has never really been there. Well, it doesn't stop the WWE from making billions of their own, but one would think that the NFL, the MLB, the NBA, and the NHL would lose at least some of their fan base if the truth about the tight control, corruption, and game fixing was really known. Which is why that lid is such a tough one to pry open. Well, interstage left, Brian Tui from thefixesin.net, the man who's made himself the world's leading expert in these very things. We had Brian here once before about three years ago, largely talking about the content in his popular books, Larceny Games, Sports Gambling, Game Fixing, and the FBI, A Season in the Abyss, Sports Gambling, and the NFL's Integrity, and his wildly popular title, The Fix is In, The Showbiz Manipulations of the NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, and NASCAR. Well, when I saw his new sequel, The Fix is Still In, more corruption and conspiracies the pro sports leagues don't want you to know about was releasing, I definitely jumped at the chance to have him back. So let's get into it. The king of sports conspiracies, the guru of sports gambling, and the ruiner of days. Brian, my man, welcome back to the higher side. Thanks for having me on, Greg. I appreciate it. <laughs> you got it. I think this is going to be a lot of fun. I know you prefer to say you're a sports skeptic, skeptical of what they're showing you, but you're in good company with the conspiracy term here. Even though it's a loaded one, we get it. <laughs> yeah, it, and you're right. It's a very loaded term, and I think that's why a lot of people in the sports media world tend to shun what I do is because once you throw conspiracy in, you know, into the mix, you get that whole tinfoil hat mentality and real journalists don't want to delve into that side of the thing. And there's a lot of questionable things in sports that people bring up here and there, but a lot of times it just gets, you know, left behind onto the next game, next season, what have you, it gets forgotten and overlooked. Right. And so you wrote the fixes in back in 2010, I believe it's been about a decade and I really should congratulate you because I know it's not easy to be the guy raining on everyone's parade, but this new sequel is ranked number one on Amazon's sports history category. And as far as I could tell, it's the only book that's critical of sports in the top 10. So kudos to you. I'm surprised at the top 10, you might want to say top 100, <laughs> but I appreciate the, uh, the well wishes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting because that's the funny thing. And that's actually what's kind of what got me started was. I was always into sports ever since a little kid. And that's from my dad and my older brothers and from reading books about sports and what have you. It's amazing how much of it is so rah, rah, you know, so pro sports. So these are good times. And here's a funny story from the locker room. And here wasn't this guy, a great player. And yet within all of those books that I read that were like that, there was always like two or three pages in each book that made you go, well, what about this? What about, you know, that party where there was all those hookers and the cocaine? Was was there more of that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's those kind of stories that really kind of got me into being the, in a way, the negative guy about sports, I guess. <laughs> well, you definitely got me thinking about Michael Jordan's famous flu game a little bit differently. Apparently he was on a gambling and cocaine bender, which is not the way we like to think of Mr. Space Jam. But hey, I mean, man like the party. <laughs> Yeah, well, and, you know, something like that. I mean, now people will say, well, you can't prove that. Well, prove that, you know, the story now is he had food poisoning from a poisoned pizza that was intentionally sent to his room to throw him off for the next day. Huh. 
I mean, prove that half. Yeah. Nobody can prove it. I think my story, which I heard from someone who's directly connected to Jordan, was that he was on an all-night bender doing cocaine and gambling. And when you look back at the time, I mean, Michael Jordan was known to be golfing and gambling on golf with a known cocaine dealer. Hmm. He was also known to be cheating on his wife. He was also known and is still known to be a heavy gambler. So what makes more sense? He had a poisoned pizza or he was out partying all night? Right, right. I mean, hey, we like to have these pristine images of our heroes. And I guess for some people, he's definitely a hero and they don't want to confront that. But I definitely enjoyed this new book. And you write in the intro that you expected The Fixes In to be the complete package. You didn't expect to write a sequel to it. Why did you? What does part two offer that wasn't there in part one? Well, it's kind of, you hate to say more of the same, but it's amazing that I wrote that book 10 years ago and, you know, I put in all the corruption that I could find. I mean, I put in stuff about gambling going back 100 years. I put in games that I thought were fixed. I talked about how certain books had written about perhaps the control of the networks, television networks over the sports landscape. And I thought that's all I needed to say. But the book, thankfully, continues to sell and continues to sell today. And people keep asking me questions about it. And ever since I wrote the book, I never really stopped doing research or looking into things. And it just seemed like things have gotten worse hmm. ever since the fixes <laughs> came out. So when it seems to get worse, it makes you go, well, there's obviously more to this than people realize. And there's more I need to talk about. So that's what I did with the fixes still in is I got more into, as I write in the subtitle, corruption and conspiracies that seem to come up in professional sports. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that does seem to be the case no matter what you're looking at, sports, politics. It seems like when people aren't held accountable or they feel like they can't get caught, they get a lot bolder with their corruption and they just feel above the law. And it seems to be true here as well. Well, and, you know, the thing that bothers me is the sports media, because ever since actually the fixes in came out, I actually was lucky enough to work or maybe unlucky enough to work, depending on how you look at it mm-hmm. within the professional sports media. I mean, I wrote for Vice Sports. I wrote for Sports on Earth, which was co-owned by USA Today and Major League Baseball Advanced Media. So, I mean, I worked with the professionals and as a professional sports writer and in doing so, I mean, I saw how they operated and I saw how they killed certain stories and I saw how certain things that they would edit out of my pieces, even though I could prove them or at least that weren't total lies or anything like that. So, I mean, I saw firsthand how they would manipulate certain stories and how they would avoid certain stories because it didn't fit in with their bottom line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Another straight parallel to news media. It's all limited hangout. We assume these are the watchdogs for a particular industry and they just aren't they give us maybe small little micro scandals but anything that affects the infrastructure is completely off limits and the news media is never going to talk about that in government sports media same thing they're dependent on sports so they're only going to push so hard and that's usually not hard at all yeah and that's what bothered me was that this is sports I mean, in the grand scheme of things, it's meaningless. I mean, to a lot of people, obviously, it means a lot of money. But I mean, like you say, in the day to day life, it's meaningless. You know, whether the Cubs win today or not, 
doesn't affect how my day is going to go. It may affect certain people, but it doesn't affect me. It doesn't matter if the Packers win the Super Bowl. It doesn't matter who wins the Stanley Cup. None of it really matters in my day-to-day life. And yet, at the same time, like you say, I saw how the sports media manipulated certain things and did so intentionally. I mean, one of the chapters in the new book, The Fix is Still In, which I write about the UFC and its comparison to boxing in the 1950s, I was actually asked by an editor of a mainstream fight. I won't even say the name of it, but the mainstream fight website to write that article. He heard me on a podcast. He said, hey, I'd like you to write an article about this comparison because I heard you talking about it. So I did. And then the guy never published it. He said, oh, well, there's problems with it. We need to talk about it. But he never made himself available to talk about it. He never identified what the problems with the article were. He just kept stringing me on, stringing me on, and then finally just let me go. So I did all this work and put all this time into it, never got paid for it, and he refused to publish it. So it wound up as a chapter, and the fix is still in. (laughs) Yeah, the UFC is something we talked about a little bit last time and how their history really mirrors the history of boxing, where we have this one guy with all the power. And UFC is probably the one, I guess, quote-unquote, sport that I am interested in, but Even in the time since we've last talked, we saw the UFC sold to a major entertainment company, and then they signed a decade-long deal with ESPN. Have your feelings about the UFC's integrity changed at all? No, not at all. (laughs) In fact, actually, the more I dig into it, the worse it gets. Mm. You know, like you said, I mean, a lot of people don't know because a lot of people don't study history, especially sports history, is that in the 1950s, boxing was literally controlled by organized crime. And it was controlled by one guy within organized crime, a guy named Frankie Carbo. And he, with these other underlings, would determine who would fight, who, where they would fight, when they would fight, and a lot of times who would win or lose because they had to build up other fights. And so then you look at the UFC in recent history, you have Dana White, who in many ways controls the UFC and controls you know, mixed martial arts in general because if you're not fighting in the UFC, what other option do you have? And Dana White kind of in many ways controlled who fought who, when they fought, where they fought. And my belief is, much like boxing in the 50s, he also determined certain times who would win and who would lose to set up other fights because they were so beholden to pay-per-view events and then later Fox and now ESPN that if you don't get the viewers watching, if you don't get people paying attention to your sport, it's going to die. And the only way to get people to pay attention and to get excited about fight after fight after fight is to, you know, do some myth building, build up these fights, build up these fighters and make it more than it perhaps should be. And if you have to manipulate things to do that, well, so be it. It's for the business interests of everybody involved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And you got me kind of reading between the lines. And after the $4 billion sale of UFC, they definitely leaned more into that WWE type of stuff having Brock Lesnar storm the ring after a a fight and it's like this is not mixed martial arts this is getting a little showy but I do like how you called out how poorly the fighters are treated because when they sign a UFC contract who basically has the monopoly on MMA the UFC owns the rights to your name your likeness even your signature and tattoos it's pretty brutal and even if you become a major name and your stock rises to say you maybe win a title Well, there's a clause in the contract that if you win the belt, 
your contract is automatically extended with no negotiation now that you are worth more. So it's a brutal place for the fighters who really should be getting the biggest piece of the pie and they do the same thing in boxing where in the beginning they stack you with easy fights. And that's why we have these fighters we start seeing on the scene that are like 15 and 0. And then all of a sudden, once they get some star power, they start getting crushed. And it's like, oh, okay. So those 15 wins, I mean, how genuine are those? It's, it's just like everything else. Well, and you're right with the UFC. I mean, and that's one thing I learned doing the research is how, like you said, how poorly the fighters are treated and that they're basically like cattle mm -hmm. and that the UFC had such control over them contractually. It was funny because, like you said, if you won a title, your contract was automatically renewed. You had no control over it as the fighter. You couldn't negotiate for more money, get a bigger cut or whatever. It was automatically renewed. But at the same time, if you lost certain fights, the UFC could determine at any time to terminate your contract and get rid of you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, all the powers with the UFC. What bothers me is when you start looking at the UFC and, you, like you said, you see former professional wrestlers, supposedly former professional wrestlers, enter the sport and be the have in the way, like, like you said, Brock Lesnar did in that one instance, it makes you wonder, well, how real is all of this? You know, how fictitious is some of this? I mean, I think, for example, Ronda Rousey's whole career, I think that was make-believe. I mean, I think she was good. I think she is talented, but I think they artificially built her up as they do many fighters in boxing as well until she got to that point where she fought, she had to face a better opponent and then the ufc let her go yeah they basically said i'm done with her they let her get her head beat in and then she scurried off professional wrestling to continue a career there <laughs> yeah it's funny how easy that transition is from serious mixed martial arts to entertainment theater in the wrestling ring but hey i mean the examples speak for themselves a lot of fighters bounce back and forth that's what i find really bizarre <laughs> yeah yeah i agree with you and then some of them go on to be, you know, actors. Well, shouldn't that really make you question what's going on? If you go from fighting professionally to being an actor and there's very little transition time, don't you wonder, well, maybe were they acting while they were fighting? It's true. <laughs> is that possible? And another thing that's changed since last time is that three years ago, sports gambling was illegal in the U.S. outside of Nevada, even though... You had told us that there were estimates that maybe 300 or 400 billion dollars could be flowing through illegal sports gambling. I think last year, though, the Supreme Court ruled to open those floodgates a little bit, right? Yes, they repealed what was known as PASPA, the Professional and Amateur Sports Protection Act that dated back to the 1990s. So basically, they allowed the states, if they want to, to legalize sports gambling and states like New Jersey and others have hopped right on board and started legalizing it and started offering it up to people, which I think is good and also a little bad, but more good than bad. Well, that was my question is, how has this affected the landscape? Because we talked a lot about the mob control of sports betting and all the dirty tricks they play. And like most things that are illegal and controlled by a mob or cartel. When you legalize them, these organized crime groups lose a bit of their monopolies. I mean, other people get monopolies and then it just becomes like higher brow crime. But maybe it's not as dirty and bloodthirsty. But regardless, is that happening at all? Are we seeing some changing of the guard in terms of this huge amount of money? Well, I think, you know, like with New Jersey, for example, legalizing it, you have 
these bigger businesses like William Hill that are professional sports bookmakers that operate in, you know, Las Vegas that operate in the United Kingdom and elsewhere. And they come in and set up operation now in New Jersey to offer it up for everyday people. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, I think then you can tax it, you can monitor it, you can regulate it. And there's a lot of good actually that can come out of that. But at the same time, these professional bookmakers like William Hill also hurt professional sports gamblers. And they affect people who want to bet higher limits on games. Because if they recognize you as being what they call a sharp gambler, somebody who wins more often than they feel you should, they will limit you as a player. You know, you used to be able to get $10,000 bet on a game. Well, now they might say you can only bet $1,000 a game. Well, that's a big deal to someone who's doing this professionally. And it's also a big deal to people who are kind of high rollers. So that kind of corporate mentality, actually, I think will negatively affect these professional bookmakers and also allow that black market to still exist because there are going to be people who still want to bet big money on these games. And if they can't do it through the legal methods, well, they're going to find a black market and there's going to be a black market that exists that will still allow these people to make these bets. And if people are going to be fixing games and do so for gambling purposes, they're still going to hide in that black market. And if these corporate bookmakers don't allow bigger bets and wagers on these games, they're never going to eliminate the black market in the United States because they can't do it around the world either. Mm -hmm. And I know you've got a lot of this dirt on the leagues by looking at FBI records. The marketing one sheet for the fixes still in mentions new previously unreleased FBI files. Can you tell us about some of the things that this latest set of files has taught you or confirmed for you? Well, <laughs> well, it just confirmed for me that, you know, basically any sport you can gamble on, somebody's tried to fix or manipulate. Yeah. I mean, I have chapters in the fixes still in that talk about horse racing and how horribly corrupt horse racing is from top to bottom. When I have files in there that talk about college sports, both basketball and football, and how players were approached and a lot of times referees were approached and how they were involved in shaving points and fixing games. But I think my favorite thing that I found which I think was my favorite because the FBI wasn't supposed to give to me was I got a video out of the FBI that they used to use for training purposes when they would go to the professional teams and make these presentations about sports and the drugs and gambling and the dangers involved in it all to these professional athletes. And I got their training video hmm. and even though it's kind of redacted, sometimes they black out the screen so you can't see who's on it or sometimes they'll eliminate the voice, or sometimes they eliminated sections altogether. It's still about 20 minutes of probably a 30-minute long video, and it's extremely interesting because they talk about game fixing as if it's happening now and currently going on and something athletes really need to be worried about, when at the same time, the NFL says we've never had a game fixed in our history. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I really like that part as well because... You talk about a couple of scenes that also mirror politics once again, where it seems like if someone wants to get you in their pocket, they just observe you for a while. They find some dirt on you. They find that you like cocaine or maybe you're gay and you're in the NFL. And they say, look, man, if you don't want this stuff to get out, you play the way I tell you to play. And that's really going on. And clearly the FBI is concerned about it or they wouldn't have made this film, even though they definitely didn't want it to get out to the general public. Well, exactly. And that's the thing that 
should concern fans is that a lot of people don't think of athletes as people. You know, they don't think about the problems these athletes could have because I think there's a fantasy involved where the common fan would love for himself to be that athlete or play that sport professionally and think it would be a dream. But they don't realize these people have problems. They have problems, you know, with their spouses or significant others. They have problems with their children. They have problems with their parents. They have problems with other family members. They have problems with drugs. They have problems with gambling. There's all sorts of weaknesses that everyday people have that athletes have as well. And they could easily be exploited by the wrong person if they got the right information about that athlete. And like you said, if you don't want it to be known that you're homosexual and you're playing in the NFL, well, if somebody knew about that, how hard would it be to blackmail that player into perhaps underperforming in a game or two so you can make some money making bets? Yeah, clearly there's blackmail pretty much everywhere you look. And there's also a funny little anecdote about that video. You were going to release it on Alex Jones, but then maybe got threatened, it seems, huh? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> it was kind of funny. I wound up on Alex Jones' show, and I don't remember exactly how it came out, but it was just after I'd gotten the video, and I'd mentioned it to him. I don't remember if I mentioned it to him on air, or perhaps I brought it up after our segment off air. And they're like, oh, my God, you got to give us that video. You know, we can release it. And I said, well, I'm not sure I can really do that. <laughs> and what happened was the FBI had contacted me. And I don't, I'm not even sure how the whole sequence of events went. But basically, the FBI contacted me and said, look, we weren't supposed to give you that video, even though we released it to you through the Freedom of Information Act. And they said it's still really technically copyrighted by the NBA because they co-produced it with NBA productions. And they said, you know, if you release it and make it public, you could have a serious problem on your hands. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I didn't release it. I was really close to doing it just to see what would happen mm -hmm. to see what would really come out of it. And so when I did the fixes in book, I was like, well, if I can't release the video itself, I know I can at least write about everything that's in it. And so that's what I did. Cause I figured that's, as close as you can get to seeing the actual video. <laughs> yeah, I definitely understand the temptation to say, screw it and poke the bear, you know, let's get crazy. But I've seen too many examples of people who put themselves out there to release some important information and then the media ignores it. Some people might see it and say, oh, well, that's interesting. And it lasts about a week. But for those people who released it, it might end up ruining their lives and it just doesn't really seem worth it in the end. So, you know, honestly, if I wasn't married, if I didn't have my wife, I probably would have done it because <laughs> with my wife, you know, there's a lot of worries and concerns and financial issues, you know, with every marriage. But if I was just on my own or if I was a lot younger, I would have released it. I would have let it go. Just like I say, just to see what would have happened. Probably would have sold some books for me. <laughs> so it would have probably created a firestorm. But I still have it. I still have a copy of it in my possessions. Who knows? Oh, that's funny, man. Yeah, we just, I'd be right there with you, blowing up our lives if we didn't have these damn wives yeah. holding us back. Well, she's not <laughs> holding me back. It just, it was, I know, I, was I know. Certain for her well being as much as my own. I know. These life attachments. Yeah, if it was just me on my own, yeah, what the heck? Let's see what happens. Because, I mean, it might have been, you know, an uh, empty threat. True. I mean, even though the FBI told me that. And that was the thing. It's not like I could 
leak it. Not that ESPN would do anything with it, but I mean, if I leaked it to ESPN, well, the FBI is going to know, well, this idiot Brian is the only guy we gave it to. Where else could it have come from? <laughs> so I mean, it's not like I could have let it slip out some way either. Right. Because it's all going to come back to me because I'm the only one who found it and asked for it and got a copy of it. So <laughs> that's true. And so I don't think anyone would be too surprised that there's cheating in sports. There's corruption in sports. But what I want to do is try to burn the whole thing down. What can we say <laughs> or what points can you reiterate to remind us that this is institutionalized from the top down, that this isn't just some isolated instances of people trying to game the system. This is sanctioned from on high to a degree. I think it all goes back to what I kind of uncovered accidentally as well is the fact is there is no law that prevents a professional sports league like the NFL or the NBA from fixing the outcome of one or all of its own games. Okay, so there's no law that prevents them from doing that. There's two laws that come close. One is the Quiz Show Act that passed in the 1950s because, believe it or not, for people who don't know, the networks, the television networks, NBC and CBS, were rigging game shows to make them more interesting to get people to watch. And when that finally blew up and was investigated, Congress passed a law that said you cannot fix an intellectual contest for television purposes. Well, Sports isn't intellectual, so that law doesn't apply. And then there's a law called the Sports Bribery Act from 1964, which says you cannot bribe a player, a coach, or a referee to alter the outcome of a sporting event. But if a league like the NFL tells its referees, hey, this is how we want you to officiate the game, they're not bribing anybody to alter the outcome of a game. They're just the employer is telling its employees how they want to manage this entertainment product known as a national football league game and they can alter the outcome of the game as they see fit and so if that exists if that ability exists for the leagues then the temptation has to be huge to be able to utilize that to make the most money and the most television ratings the most advertising revenue and make your television broadcast partners as happy as can be and to occasionally fix or alter the outcome of a game to make sure that the best business decision comes to life. Mm -hmm. I think that's such an important point that their laws are carefully crafted so that outside manipulation is illegal, but internal manipulation is completely okay. And people don't realize that and they should. Well, and I like to equate it to this. I say, look, if you're McDonald's, okay, or Burger King, whoever, but say you're McDonald's and you find an additive, a food additive that you can stick in your hamburger and it's FDA approved. And there's nothing illegal about it, but you can stick this food additive into your hamburger. Every time a customer buys one and takes a bite of it, it tastes better. Each time you take a bite, it tastes better. You're going to put that in your hamburger tomorrow because you're going to sell more hamburgers, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that only makes sense. If it's a legal food additive, you can stick it in there. It makes your food taste better. You're going to do it. Well, that's exactly what the NFL can do. The NFL can manipulate the games while you're consuming them to make them more exciting, to make them more entertaining, to make you want to watch more, and they can do it perfectly legally. So why wouldn't they do that? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Another telling fact to me is that these sports leagues are profit sharing. This is kind of insane because it means the rivalries are just fantasies that when you buy 
a jersey for your favorite team. You're also giving money to the rival that you so desperately want to see defeated. And it is a big sham because that aspect, I don't think a lot of people know it, but it is quite telling when it comes to the motivations and where the real conflicts are or the imaginary conflicts are. Well, yeah, because the rivalries are really media created or fan created. I mean, amongst the players, they may pay it lip service, but amongst the owners, I don't believe it exists whatsoever. Because as you said, there's a lot of revenue sharing. In the NFL alone, I could never get an exact number, but anywhere from probably 70 to 80% of all the revenue the NFL makes is shared equally amongst all 32 teams. Hmm. I mean, it's crazy when you stop and think about it. I mean, you think about literally the NFL makes 10 to $12 billion a season, and 80% of that is shared equally. So when you have the New England Patriots win the Super Bowl, and you have the Detroit Lions wind up being 2-14 and 14 again. In reality, they're making the same amount of money. Mm-hmm. And what's even more bizarre is like, you know, when they sell all those Patriot World Championship t-shirts, the Lions are getting a cut of that money. <laughs> so are the team that the Patriots beat. So are the Seahawks or the Bears. I mean, so everybody's making money off those championship t-shirts. So what happens when a team wins a championship? Does it really bother the other owners that their team's not the one winning the championship when they're making the same amount of money? I don't think so. <laughs> yes. And right along these lines, I wanted to ask you about this book, Scorecasting, that you write about. The authors seem to collect all the data that shows the home team advantage that we've all heard of is literally just cheating and collusion. It's better for the leagues who we just established profit share when home teams win because people buy more beer, they buy more merch, and they come back for more games. So the leagues look the other way, or who knows, maybe even encourage this behavior since all the revenue is shared anyway. But this book got the data right, but not the conclusion. (laughs) I'm being totally honest here. That's the first time in my life I ever threw a book down (laughs) while I was reading it was that scorecasting chapter on home field advantage. I got so angry. I literally threw the book because it's, it's insane. These guys, one guy's a editor, still an editor at sports illustrated the author. And one of the other authors is an economist and they wanted to do a freakonomics type of book about sports. And one of the things they explored was like you said, home field advantage and their determination was that in every sport, the NHL, major league baseball, the NFL and the NBA, Home field advantage totally existed. And their conclusion was through all their stats and data crunching and all that was that home field existed because of officiating. And that in Major League Baseball, balls and strikes, in the NBA, fouls, in the NHL, fouls, NFL, fouls was all created by the officials. And at the same time, they said, look, we understand that when the home team wins, more merchandise is sold, more tickets are sold, all these benefits come along with the home team winning more games than losing and then their final conclusion was that even though the officials are causing it and even though it's benefiting the league and the teams that it was basically accidental that it happened that it was just an unconscious response by the referees that causes home field advantage Mm. and they said that in fact my favorite quote was they said the officials are uncorrupted and uncorruptible, (laughs) which I thought was just absurd. And that's when I think I actually chucked the book. Mm. I mean, they concluded they, they had everything right. And then they said, well, it just, it's just one of those things that happens. And I'm like, how could you be so naive? 
why won't you just say what your own statistics show that the leagues are manipulating these games to make sure the home team wins because it benefits everybody involved? Yeah. Blinders, man. So many people with the blinders. <laughs> well, and I think it's like you said, because one of the writers works for Sports Illustrated and still does. He was afraid to write that mm-hmm. because what they wrote was just absurd. And that's why I covered in the book, because I think their methodology and their data was all correct. And I just think that they intentionally botched the conclusion because they didn't want it to be the truth. Yeah, I hear you. And so. I'm just an interviewer, really, not even a real researcher, per se. And people send me stuff all the time about something they uncovered or something their grandpa told them about his years in the military. And I got to assume that you get the same thing. Has anyone shared info with you since the book came out, the first book, that maybe you didn't know about or were impressed with? My favorite one was after I was on the first time I was on Coast to Coast AM as a guest. I had a guy, a gentleman, email me. And said he was a former CIA agent and that they knew that the famous 1972 gold medal, gold medal, gold medal Olympic basketball game played between the United States and the Soviet Union was fixed. And the reason it was fixed is because the CIA knew that the KGB had kidnapped one of the referees families and threatened to kill them if the Soviet Union lost that basketball game. Hmm. And so I did actually, I followed up on it because I was like, well, this seems too bizarre not to be true. I mean, it seems kind of a random thing for somebody just to make up and pull out of thin air and email to me. But when I contacted the CIA through the Freedom of Information Act, in typical CIA fashion, I got a response that literally said, we can neither confirm nor deny any such file exists. Hmm. (laughs) Funny thing, funny thing. So I wanted to ask you about this. It comes from your website, but you have a section on there dedicated to the prospect of putting magnets in the actual balls or the pucks and being able to actually manipulate the magnetic field itself. I mean, the basketball net is metal. The hockey net is metal. This stuff is there. The uprights of the NFL's field goal is also metal. This is interesting, maybe speculative, but... When you look at those videos that you have, those clips that you include on that page, I mean, my mind was pretty much blown, man. This seems like it's a real thing. I know. It seems, like you say, it seems extremely speculative, and it's not something I totally believe. But I was told, and even the reason it even came up was I was told by a guy I met. I don't remember where I met him. It was after the fixes in came out, and he said he was a former NBA ball boy the Chicago Bulls because I'm in the Chicago area and he asked me he goes do you know there's magnets in the balls right and I said what do you mean he goes yeah there's magnets in the balls and the rims are magnetized and I was like seriously he's like yeah now he goes supposedly it's in there for the ball to be able to basically automatically reset the shot clock when the ball goes through the rim he goes but I think they actually can magnetically repulse the ball away from the net or pull the ball in for a score if they want to. And I said, well, that's kind of bizarre, but okay. And I just kind of kept that in the back of my head. And now as we've advanced, as time has advanced, I've seen things, which like you said, I post on some of the clips on my website that seem to really confirm what this guy was telling me, because you see the football sometimes going right toward the uprights when suddenly make a right hand turn away, or you see 
balls that shouldn't go through the hoop go in or you see the hockey puck looks like it's going to go in the net and then suddenly makes a right hand turn away from the net and it makes me wonder you know the technology exists it's possible but i don't know can you create that strong of a magnetic field around a rim or a hockey net to really push or pull a puck or a ball that's being shot that fast in or away i don't know but it's something to think about well as you ask would you leave a billion dollar industry to chance I mean, I find him so convincing. The one that I think any sports fan should take a look at is John Quick's famous magic puck. He, I guess this guy takes a shot. The goalie does not make contact with the puck. It's about to go into an open net and whoop, it goes a complete 180 and just comes right out. And they've got a shot from above. They've got shots from the side. And just that one example to me proves that something's up. And also, it is worth noting this detail that apparently the NFL was looking into magnetic fields to manipulate balls, and then they stopped, and they just stopped talking about it. And that's a thing that we've seen in government before with secret projects. They'll make some comments about it, about what's possible, and then when the rollout really happens, that's when everybody gets quiet. I mean, it might be true for this magnets thing, too. Well, like you said, the NFL was looking into it and they were working with the Walt Disney Company yeah. when they were looking at it, which makes it even more interesting. And to me, too, it goes into the whole idea of the state of officiating in professional sports. How is it that it's 2019 and we have all this computer technology and what have you? And the only way we can measure whether or not a team made a first down is by two guys holding the length of chain. Why is that the only way we can do this? Why isn't there technological advances that can tell us how far the ball went? Or did the ball break the plane of the goal? Or did the puck cross the red line and is it a goal or is it not a goal? I mean, there's all sorts of things that I think would be very feasible and very easy to implement in all of these sports that would eliminate some of the instant replays, that would eliminate some of the guesswork from it, and yet none of it is being implemented. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think the reason none of it is being implemented is because they don't want to lose control. The guys who run the leagues, if you take it away from the officiating, if you allow a computer to call balls and strikes in a baseball game as opposed to an umpire, well, suddenly now there's really no room for error. There's no fudge room. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So now you can't put pressure on a pitcher. You can't put pressure on a hitter on some of these borderline calls if that's what you so desire. It is what it is. And that's the same with scoring goals or you know, marking first downs or what have you. If you put in more technology, you get rid of the human element. Well, technology supposedly isn't fallible. I mean, I'm sure there's ways they can work around that, too. But if you have the officials on the field making the calls, then using instant replay to supposedly correct those calls, then you have more control over the sport and the outcome. And I think that's why technology is shunned in many ways although maybe being used in these magnets. Who knows? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I just love the magnets example because it really drives home the institutionalized corruption and the fact that you're basically watching something that's akin to a ballet or theater. And another example where I think it's pretty telling that something's up is we all have seen these half-court shots that people make for money. You know, during the, the breaks, they pull someone out from the audience, which... Who knows if that person's even genuine and actually winning the money that they may be making like from making the shot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> they have the shill in the stands, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And there's definitely one where, think about a half-court shot. It's not a light thing, you know. It's a, a lot, uh, it's coming in hot, you know. And so this dude throws the ball from half-court, and it sticks to the square plate above the hoop. And it's like the force in which that thing's coming in and the bounciness of a basketball, it would definitely not do that. I've seen balls get jammed in the side of the rim. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about right on the top and it just sticks like a magnet, like someone forgot to shut it off during halftime and went out and took a leak and really exposed themselves there. But I thought that was a great example. And as you note, you can't keep an NBA ball if you catch one during a game, nor can you keep the kicking ball in the NFL if it goes in the stands. A regular NFL ball you can, but not the actual kicking ball. And that's a clue. Yeah. Well, and I didn't realize that was a thing until, again, someone had emailed me about that and how I can't remember if it was like the guy who emailed me, his brother, some sort of family relation caught one of the balls, a kicking ball that had, I don't remember if it had gone through the uprights or it was a missed field goal, whatever, but it went into the stance and this guy caught it and NFL security, he said, was on this guy and got the ball away from him and gave him a different ball, but they wouldn't allow him to keep that ball. <laughs> Curious thing indeed. And I guess if people want to watch sports, even if it's heavily manipulated and largely fixed for maximum wealth extraction, but they're still having a good time. That's fine, but the big thing that bothers me is when these billionaires get taxpayer money and prime downtown real estate just handed to them to build these stadiums. And they don't even call them, like, the people of Boston's arena or something like that. It's still the Colgate Center or Petco Park or the Pepsi Arena. And we just let it go on the assumption that the team is bringing in money for the city. But the data shows that not to be true. They're taking money out of a city into the private hands of billionaire owners and private leagues, not to mention the opportunity cost of what could have gone in there. But a lot of people miss how big a deal this really is. No, I mean, there's people smarter than me who figured this out. You know, there's sports economists that have said, look, if your city, if they had a team like they took the city of Baltimore when they lost the Baltimore Colts, when that team left town it's not like baltimore fell apart because the colts left i mean baltimore is falling apart as it is i guess but not because the colts left but what happens is basically people spend their entertainment money on other forms of entertainment so if they don't have the professional sports team there to waste their money on then they wind up going to other things they go to the theater they go to see an orchestra they find other ways to spend their entertainment money so it doesn't really negatively affect a city to have a team leave and then that they also have shown that even teams being there that it may have an impact on the immediate surrounding a couple of blocks around a stadium but other than that the city really shows no positive economic impact either so yeah when you see all this tax money being thrown at these teams that are privately owned teams that keep all the profits from the stadium and you see this tax money being thrown at them People need to realize it's not really benefiting you as a citizen of that city or state, especially not the state. There's very little positive economic impact, if any positive economic impact, from these stadiums being built and these teams being in their towns. Mm -hmm, well said. And it's like a siphon to take money out of a city while pretending to be a part of it. I mean, that's how it looks to me. And I pulled this off your website. 
you say it was supposed to be a chapter in the new book, but you kind of forgot about it. And just to quote <laughs> the page, forgot about it. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that can happen. But hey, I mean, I think this information is some of the best because it it spills over into outside of the sports community somewhat. But to quote the page, you say this is a list of all the NFL and MLB teams when they built their newest stadiums or had it renovated and the success each franchise coincidentally enjoyed around the stadium's opening or reopening. What you will see is a fairly direct correlation between a team needing or wanting a new stadium and winning. Remember, too, that when a new stadium is announced, it'll be at least a year before it actually opens. So when you see a team's good fortune occur before the stadium opens, that result is still tied to the stadium's opening. I think the list speaks for itself. And, of course, there you have 30-plus examples from both baseball and football. Seems pretty fishy, man. I mean, this is another indication that it's all about money, that you want to generate excitement before this new stadium opens just to get people excited. And I guess I would ask, what examples might be most obvious to sports fans in your mind? That's a good question, which one's the most obvious. I mean... Like I said, that whole list in a way speaks for itself because you can go through most of the teams that wanted a new stadium and got public money to build the new stadium. And then you see immediately after that stadium is approved or immediately after it opens, that team suddenly is in the playoffs or suddenly in the Super Bowl or it's in the World Series. And it just seems way too coincidental to be all based off of the stadium. Mm -hmm. You know, just the fact that these players have new training facilities doesn't mean they should suddenly win the Super Bowl. It's just bizarre. I mean, you had the Vikings open a new stadium. They wound up in the NFC Championship game. You had the Falcons open up a new stadium. They wound up in the Super Bowl. I mean, how often can that occur? It's very odd. There's only really like two or three teams that I can think of, one being the Lions and one being the Browns. And the Browns, you can't even really count because they were basically a brand new franchise. But Teams that have had new stadiums and not had that sort of success. Mm. I mean, it's really bizarre. And, you know, it even does leak over into the NHL and the NBA as well. But it doesn't seem to be as prominent of a thing in those two sports as it is with football and baseball. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to talk about gambling a little more and the idea of point shaving. For people who don't know anything about sports gambling, it can be pretty complex because you're usually not just betting on which team will win, but they have to cover the spread. They have to win by this certain amount dictated by the bookie. And point shaving is when you don't really alter who wins, but bookies or whoever will work to manipulate that spread and make it most advantageous for them gambling-wise, right? I mean, this is the way it works. And there's also, apparently, evidence that there are some statistical anomalies when you get right around that point spread. Yeah, the point spread, I mean, it's hard to, well, it's not that hard to explain, but basically for people who aren't aware, because there are so many games in football and basketball that are seemingly lopsided, they created this point spread to make the teams more even. So basically, if a team is favored by seven points, they have a fictional seven points taken off their final score and added to the other team's point total. So if the Bulls are favored by seven points over the Bucks, that means the Bulls have to win by seven or more points for you to win your bet on the Bulls. And if you bet on the Bucks, you are given seven points. 
So as long as the Bucks either win or lose by less than seven points, you would win your bet on the Bucks. And so what's happened is because there's that fictional playroom that was created by the bookies, gamblers and organized crime figured out, well, look, we can approach guys, my example, like on the Bulls, and say, hey, look, you don't have to lose the game. You just don't win by more than seven points because that's the way we want this to work. We're going to bet on the box. So if you can win your game, but only win it by, say, five points because the point spread is seven, then our bet on the Bucks is going to win even though the Bucks lose. And the Bulls win. So that's what they figured out is they could approach, especially college kids who aren't being paid in basketball and in football and convince them, hey, we don't want you to lose the game. We just want you to make sure you don't win by so many points and everybody will be happy and we'll get paid. You'll get paid. And, you know, no one will know what's going on. And so what's happened is I think it's happened a lot. I mean, I think it's happened hundreds of times that nobody's ever figured out. But there were some college professors and economists, again, who looked at this and thought that they saw anomalies that when a point spread in college basketball was more than 12, that there were probably players out there shaving points, be it for gamblers or for their own purposes, but that they were not covering the point spread as regular as they should have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the book, you cited as a 2006 study that showed when they looked at 40,000 Division I NCAA games and their betting lines, the statistical anomaly came out when they looked at the 12-point spread. The analyzer said this isn't a natural distribution. It proves the very point. And the funny thing is, is that I do have friends that bet on sports. And of course, I'm conspiracy guy. And they've made comments to me about this very thing, that the numbers end up perfectly outside of what would pay them out. Funny how that happens. Yeah, it is funny how that happens, isn't it? But I think one of the things, too, that these guys who look into this and have studied this don't think about is the opposite thing. Is I think the easiest way, the best way to fix a game, and I probably shouldn't tell anybody how to do this, Hmm. but I think the best way to fix a game is say the point spread was 12 points and whoever Duke was playing Iowa and Duke was favored by 12 points. Well, I think the best way to fix the game would not be to go to a Duke player and say, hey, we want you to win by only like 10 points or eight points. I think the best play would be to approach an Iowa player and say, hey, look, you're already expected to lose and you probably even know you're going to lose to Duke. So why don't you just get killed today and lose by 20? (laughs) And I think if you fix the game that way, Nobody would ever know what's going on because Duke's expected to win anyway. They're expected basically to blow Iowa out. So when that occurs, nobody looks at it cross-eyed because everything went the way according to plan. Whereby if Duke only beat Iowa by two, people might be like, well, hey, there was some shady play by that player. That was an odd call there. What happened? But if you just make an expected blowout, an even greater blowout by fixing the losing side, nobody's going to look twice at it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's just such an important point that it isn't about necessarily deciding who wins or loses. It's just about how much. And this is a little nuance that non-sports fans probably don't really reflect on how easy it is to manipulate money and betting, but it's there. And of all the leagues, it seems like the NFL is by far the biggest and also the most corrupt. And One of the things I like most about this recent book is the list of quote after quote from players and people on the inside 
that routinely say that their games are more entertainment than true competition. Just to read one of them here, you have Joe Thomas of the Cleveland Browns saying, We're talking about a different NFL now. Before, it was more about the games. Now, it's such an entertainment business, it's turning into WWE, really. It's like the Vince McMahon stuff. Basically, Roger Goodell is like the Vince McMahon. I mean, <laughs> you couldn't make it much more clear, could you? No, and the funny thing is, is Joe Thomas has, uh, since retiring from the NFL, has a radio show. And I, I can't remember, he either signed on with either ESPN or Fox to be one of their main broadcasters. Mm. So, I mean, here's a guy who played in the NFL for 10 years or more, who compared the league to the professional wrestling, who says it's really entertainment. And now he's working with the broadcast media to, you know, promote and talk about the NFL. Funny how that worked out for Joe, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, if you can't beat him, join him, I guess. But yeah, one other one I really like is from former 49ers linebacker Chris Borland, where he says the NFL is like a spectacle of violence for entertainment and your actors in it. You're complicit in that you put on the uniform and it's a trivial thing at its core. It's make-believe, really. That's the truth about it. Again, pretty telling, but how many football fans are going to just dismiss something like that? Well, because they don't want to hear it. If you believe in a fairy tale, you don't want to hear that it's not true. I mean, how many kids are thrilled to hear that Santa Claus doesn't exist? <laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of kids jump for joy, like, oh, yeah, great. There's no such thing as Santa Claus. That's great. No, it's the same thing with fans. And the problem with sports is, and when I talk about this in the fixes in is that sports in many ways acts like a drug and it affects you psychologically. If you're a huge sports fan, they have something that's called basking in reflective glory, mm. which means if you're a fan of a certain team and that team does well, you get kind of a natural high from that. You feel good about yourself from that. You know, you'd say, oh, it's up. If you listen to sports radio, which isn't the most fun thing to listen to, but if you do listen to sports radio, you can hear it because fans will call in and they'll talk about a team and they'll say, we need to do this. We need to trade for that guy. We need to start him and not him. And it's like, we, you're not on the team, buddy. I'm sorry. I don't care if you own a jersey and the hat and you go to a lot of games. You're not on the team. It's not we, it's they. Yeah. And then they found also that when teams start to lose, fans will disassociate themselves. And when they call in, they will say, like, they need to do that. and They need to do this. But many times it's this we mentality, like fans have this psychological need for sports and feel a part of that team and it affects them. So when you start talking about that, Hey, this is just entertainment. You might as well be watching the Kardashians or survivor or American Ninja warrior or something else. It's all just entertainment. It's the same difference. It really upsets them. Mm -hmm. And I've also heard conversations regarding energy and just the energy of large groups of people or, even male energy, not that men are the only ones who watch sports, but this idea that it numbs the masses from maybe rebelling against something real in politics and corruption that maybe actually affects their lives. And you can kind of see how the energetic shape of people storming the White House because they're pissed about the cost of health care mirrors the way people look in a stadium at a game when they're getting really excited. And I could definitely see the case that this is the opiate of the masses. Maybe it was religion once, it's sports today, but I think there's a major component to social control that is sometimes overlooked. 
I agree. I think a lot of times it's like, you know, the gladiator games in ancient Rome. I mean, they put those on for a reason. They put them on to distract the masses from what the government was doing. And in many ways today, like we talked about earlier, the government funds to a certain extent professional sports. They help them build the stadiums. They give them tax breaks. They made, you know, certain like the NFL was a tax exempt organization for a while. There's certain breaks that the government gives professional sports. And like I said, I think it acts in the same way that people can be so distracted by sports and more worried about who their team is going to trade for or if they're going to get this free agent or if they're going to win the game or not. Then they are, you know, things like you say, healthcare and other things that directly impact their lives. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yes, that is life. And on the subject of football, last time you had cited Super Bowl three as the example of what might be the biggest and most clearly fixed game in sports history. Can you give us another game that you think might reach kind of those heights that might have sports fans scratching their heads if they saw it in the right light? Maybe something recent or something that's happened in the past few years or decade? I think the number one, absolutely for sure, without a doubt, fixed game, which wasn't a big game really in the grand scheme of things, but I think for sure the most fixed game I ever saw was the Saints' first game back in the Superdome after Hurricane Katrina because it was a big Monday night football deal. They played the Atlanta Falcons. There was a blocked punt right at the beginning of the game by one of the Saints, which is actually now immortalized outside the stadium in a statue because of that play. The coach of the Falcons at the time was Jim Mora, whose dad had been formerly the coach of the Saints a few years earlier. I mean, I think that game was fixed from top to bottom, and it was all done for a show because it was an NFL thing about the saints rejuvenating the city of new orleans after a hurricane i think from top to bottom that was fixed right on but if you want to go championship game i would say the 2016 nba finals when lebron brought the title back to cleveland i think that was a total rig job as well that whole series <laughs> awesome I love it. And of course, the book is really, really well put together and books do take a long time to write and your finger is on the pulse and sports are always going on. Praise be. <laughs> is there anything right now you're paying attention to that you think's a little fishy? Not really. I've kind of taken a break after the book came out. <laughs> You've made your case. Yeah, you can only. And that's the thing. I mean, after writing the fixes in, I thought I had made my case and apparently nobody got the point. So I'd write the fixes still in to further make my case. And hopefully I don't have to write the fixes still still in 10 years from now. I hope it's all said and done. So hopefully I can start looking at other things to investigate and write about. But yeah, for right now, sports, all you have is baseball going on and nobody cares about baseball, really. <laughs> hey, tell me about it. I've got roped into three baseball games this weekend because the Cardinals are in town playing the Padres. And if I want to see any of my friends, I get to go sit at three baseball games. So there you go. I'm with you. I don't care about it at all. But man, this is always fun for me since I do have no connection to sports, but I understand how it might make some people angry. Sometimes the truth is uncomfortable, but you just got to take it. And before we go, are there any other projects in the pipeline or things we should just tell people about following your work or your website or getting the book? The best place to go if people want to, if they want to ask me questions, if they want to get the book, if they want to learn more information about it all, is just my website, which is thefixesin.net. And all my social media is there and everything. So 
fixesin.net is the place to go. Boom. Awesome. Well, I love that you've done so much work to define yourself as the go-to guy for sports corruption. You really have made your own niche and remain the headmaster of all things uncouth in the sports world, and that's a beautiful thing. Cheers, and keep doing what you do, man. Thanks again. Thanks. I appreciate you having me on, Greg. It's always fun to talk. And boom goes the dynamite, internet friends and family. The return of the sports conspiracy Jedi. And I really enjoyed it. I think Brian is a really great example of someone who decided what their role was going to be in the world and just went for it. And there is a good lesson in that. If you ever listen to Jordan Peterson, he talks a lot about issues with men. And it's not extremely related, but if we're going to talk about some man shit, it should be to cap off a sports episode, right? Yeah, but he talks about how young men are pretty lost right now, and a big part of that is that they can't find a dominance hierarchy where they can be successful. And that term sums it up so well. And after I heard it, I sort of realized that that was a big part of my decision process to do what I do now. The main focus when this was all just ideas was, oh, I should try to be a comic or a writer. And those are extremely competitive and almost unattainable sounding paths from where I was in life. But when I was asked, I'd say those were things that I wanted to do, but subconsciously I knew it was probably never going to happen that way. And then I thought, well, you do love listening to these alternative researchers. It's definitely a passion. And if you go back nine or ten years, I only had a few shows to listen to. And I thought, hey, I could do that. And I think I could do it well. And here we are. But Brian is an even more specific and dialed-in example that makes that point, that you can absolutely be doing what you love if you find a slice of the pie that you can make yours. Because he is the best at this, and he almost has zero competition. If anyone out there is struggling to find their place, their career path, their own expertise, Think about how to find a unique way to express the things that are already your interests, probably things you're halfway there on if you just built from what you know and love already. Something to think about, but you probably don't need the lecture. In terms of content, one of my favorite sections of this show was about the magnets in balls and rims and pucks, but it is something you need to see to believe. I actually brought up one of the hockey clips to a hockey-loving buddy of mine, and he says, Yeah, I've seen it, and I can just tell by his tone that he absolutely knows how sketchy it looks, and he says, I don't know, man. I just try to chalk it up to a divot in the ice or a weird bounce. What can you say? And I thought, exactly. What can you say? Well, you can say that it's all a sham. (laughs) I kid. I kid the sports fans, but check out that page on Brian's website for some real physics-defined shots. Of course, I thank Brian for what he does. I couldn't do a show like this without him. It's clear he's found a niche that he's happy with, despite the critics. That's always going to be in the mix, but we do what we do, and we deal with the rest. In THC News, the joint session this month will be on the 25th of July, 7 p.m. Pacific. Come join me, and let's have a chat of our own. I also spoke too soon about the new consolidation of the THC website's launch date. 
We're going with Monday, August 5th. A Monday works best for the web folks because they'll have a full five days to make sure everything runs smoothly. And I wasn't going to argue with that. So next joint session, July 25th, 7 p.m. Pacific, and the new website is launching August 5th. Stop on by and take a look. I think you'll love the facelift, and if you're a Plus member who doesn't just use the RSS feed and plug that into one of the many podcast apps like the majority of people do, if you actually do log on to the website to listen, I'm sure it's a minority, but still, I think your experience will be improved as well. Of course, every Higher Side Chats episode that you're hearing out in the wild for free is just the first hour of what are really two-hour interviews that you can get into by signing up to be a Plus member. Eight bucks a month, five extra hours of interviews, and a lot of extra stuff as well. Consider it if you like what I do and think I'm high enough on the conspiracy podcaster dominance hierarchy for it to be worth your while. Today's Extra Hour with Brian covered things like the nuances of the NHL, the Las Vegas Golden Knights saga, and the acceptance of fighting. Also, what you don't know about sports broadcasting rights, NASCAR corruption and getting the call, horse racing corruption and cheating, esports and loot boxes, who would have thought, and of course, the biggest fixed games in sports history. What takes that title in Brian's mind? Well, we talked about one last time. What else is up there? It's got to be more than one, and it is. All great additional threads to the sports conspiracy cardigan that Brian conversationally crochets so well. And I think that's about it for me. I always really, really appreciate the support. And that's true now more than ever. I'm sure you get it. So thanks again. I love all you guys. Your move, sports fixing franchises, billion dollar ball game controllers, and three letter leagues of deception fucking move they built a little empire out of some crazy garbage called the blood of the exploited working class but they've overcome their shyness now we're calling them your highness and the world screams save me thc They destroyed the bonds of friendship and respect Between the only people left Who'd even look them in the eye Now they laugh and make a fortune Off the same ones that they tortured And a world screams Save me, THC the blood.